Mario. So. We had been on a path toward racial justice that was amazing. There was the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. We were at a tipping point. We're 50 years later now. Once again, America is having to look at issues of race dead in the eye. And once again, we are at a tipping point. And the question for all of us in this room is, what are we going to do about it? If I make the statement to you, America was founded on white supremacy. You could say, Jeff, that's an extreme statement. And what I would say to you is, don't believe a word I say about it. All you have to do is go look. Slavery had nothing to do with the war because they were treated as family. I don't know if he can be reached, but if no one tries, he definitely won't change. Lynchings took place in this very spot. Everybody needs to know what happened because it's a part of our history, American history. America has demonstrated its greatness time and time again, and America is one of the most racist countries on the face of the earth. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. Virginia passed a law, an enslaved person's death while resisting a master is not a felony. Would you look at those words, please, and think about the videos you have seen in the past 10 years? Shut fired! It's still not a felony. Sing hallelujah! We want all Confederate memorabilia removed from our city. We have to save other lives. It's just too big of a story. Hallelujah! And this is who we are in America. Good afternoon and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And Jeffrey Robinson's, uh, he's the producer and writer, Who We Are, A Chronicle of Racism in America, directed by Emily uh, Kunstler and Sarah Kunstler. Um, It's a Sony Classics release. Audiences look at the birth of this nation and how 55 years after the Kerner Report, July 1967, 156 years after the first Civil Rights Bill, ratified April 9, 1866, just after the Civil War, followed by Civil Rights Amendment March 1, 1875, Civil Rights Amendment September 9, 1957, Civil Rights Amendment 1964, and Civil Rights Amendment 19. Or Night Civil Rights Act, sorry. <laughs> uh, 1968. Not much has changed for black people in America. What makes this chronicle unique is the discussant's life, that is, Jeffrey Robinson's, which anchors and centers a narrative that is surprising. Not because we didn't know it was so bad, but the facts that lend themselves, but to the facts that lend themselves to the tragedy. Robinson states that his parents were unicorns and his childhood and life a fable or fairy tale. Born in Memphis, Tennessee, he and his three siblings grew up loved and protected. He says that he wasn't the smartest kid in town. 
However, he was able to graduate from Harvard Law School and have a very legal career as a public defender in Seattle, where he represented indigenous clients in state and federal court. A litigant for the ACLU, Robinson was one of the original members of the John Adams Project, where he worked on behalf of one of the five men held at Guantanamo Bay, charged with carrying out the 9-11 attacks. Yet, when his wife's sister died and her son Matt, then 13, came to live with him and his wife, Robinson says, What started out as a search in my attempt to help my nephew deal with the challenges of racism in America turned into an education I was not expecting. Part TED Talk with music, charts, statistics, and video, part facts spliced with living examples of the phenomena, who we are is a racism 2022 road trip. Emily Kunstler, director, handles a 11-passenger van with her daughter, sister Sarah aboard, mother aboard, Robinson, of course, and his wife, plus a few others. Between interviews, Robinson and company debrief, sometimes on camera. We witness Robinson's unpacking some of the really hard moments. The brilliant way the director spliced Robinson's taped conversations with the in-the-moment interviews with mothers like Gwen Carr, Eric Gardner's mother, and other family members who lost loved ones in state violence, families who are still grieving the killing of their brother, son, friend, husband, plus multiple survivors of racial terrorism and terrorist landmarks and monuments like the lynching tree in Charleston, South Carolina. Places like the Old Slave Mart Museum, also in Charleston, and monuments of Civil War massacres and murderers. Such sites and testimony show these sites, sounds, and stories from multiple perspectives as camera shifts from presenter to participant. We see Robinson shed tears and get angry as logic and bigotry refuse to share space. This history lesson needs no popcorn. Not only will you stay in your seat, you will look for references to read later to understand more completely the discourse which moves too quickly to comprehend its magnitude. Most of what we know about American history is a cleaned-up version of the founding story from Francis Scott Key's poem excerpt for the National Anthem to the polished lies and laws and documents like the Constitution of the United States that kept enslaved persons enslaved and ensured black lives legally never matter. Emily and Sarah Kunstler saw Robinson's presentation and suggested the idea for a film. Reluctant at first, the trust grew over the 12 years or so it took to bring the project to completion. As Robinson traveled the country with his presentation, he spoke to other citizens about human rights. The interviews, as mentioned, are interspersed with the presentation. Like a dance, the live and scripted conversations woven together show the complex nature of racism in America. From Mother Leslie Benningfield Randall, born in 1914, one of the last remaining survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921, to Dr. Tiffany Crutcher, activist and twin sister of Terrence Crutcher, 
an unarmed 40-year-old man who was shot and killed in Tulsa when his car stalled on the city street. To Senator Henry Hank Saunders and his wife, Faye Ora Rose Toure, Toure's discussion of a name change for the bridge named after a grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, Edmund Pettus Bridge, to Freedom Bridge. Tammy Sawyer, a Memphis County commissioner and political activist, looks tired when the new Confederate monuments finally come down. She says she is tired because we had to fight so hard. I had friends who went to jail for this. A woman was killed for this. While this statue came down, almost another 1,000 stand across the country. People are working harder to protect them, yet they tell us that we are wrong or attention seekers and that they are to reconcile and get to the point of truth. Uh, yeah, wait a second. <laughs> Sorry, I'm reading this from my website, Wanda Sticks. Let me start again. People are working harder to protect them, yet they tell us that we are wrong or attention seekers. Um, that they are to reconcile and get a point of truth and understanding about who these people are. I think I wrote that wrong, sorry. Robinson states that all the Confederate monuments and memorials were built in the 20th century. He says these men are honored for their bloodshed, not for any particularly honorable act. These monuments are built for men who upheld the rights of the enslavers and killed those in the war who fought against these rights. Dr. King's killing and that of Larry Payne, Robinson's peer, who was killed with a shotgun blast to the chest at close range by a Memphis police officer during the 1968 sanitation workers' strike, opens the story. The officer never faced charges and Miss Carolyn Payne, his sister's family, have never received an apology from the city of Memphis to date. The stories are true and painful, especially when juxtaposed with the racial epithet running like supertitles across the narrative of this nation, no matter who is in office, Richard Nixon, Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan, Donald Trump, Trump, Bush Jr. and Bush Sr., even Barack Obama, all have blood on their hands. In a recent interview, I spoke to Robinson and the directors about the film, which is opening, which has opened throughout the nation. Uh, last it opened throughout the nation last month, February. Who we are in America? Who we are? Um, a uh, racial, a chronicle of race in America. Sorry. <laughs> ah, darn. I'm sorry. I'm messing this up. Let me try it again. Um, who we are? Uh, a, the Chronicle of Race in America is now is now a project with a mission to give space to documenting these stories so that there is a historic record. Here, uh, the link is who we are in a, who we are in America project, and there's a website and all of the refer who we all the um, no who we are America no who we are America projects are not in who we are America projects, and uh, it's really a, a it's a really great website. It's whoweareamericaproject.com. And when you're looking at the film and you see all of these great references that uh, Robinson, who is a scholar, um, points out in his lecture, which, like I said, is interspersed throughout the film, 
you can go to this website, oh my goodness, and, and read the complete document. It's so excellent. And it's a really interactive website so that, you know, there's a way like you can really be engaged with other other people around this topic of race in America and how it colors everything literally. Um, the film, as I mentioned, also is, is a, a Sony Classics release, and uh, and you and I just read you the review, which I need to clean up, obviously, <laughs> on Wanda's picks um, for for this month, the month of May. And so now I'm going to um, play the uh, interview with uh, the uh, the writer and um, producer and directors Emily and Sarah uh, Kunstler, um, which happened last month. And, um, yeah, and it was really, really touching. At, at, at one point, um, uh, Robinson gets choked up, and we, we just pause. So that's... That's what happens there um, because this this really this is really really um, close to his heart and um, and close to ours all of ours because um, we really need to um, address this and and uh, yeah address this for um, it's it's uh it's really important you know that that we look at ourselves through this lens and, and see how we can get beyond this. Maria. So, um, so I was thinking um, that maybe, um, I'm going to do auto transcript. I just discovered this. I don't know why I just discovered it, but it's so cool because then I don't have to transcribe it. <laughs> You know, after all this time, that's so crazy. Anyway, I just want to tell you that I really um, love the film even more um, after watching it again, after I missed our interview. I don't remember, was that last year? <laughs> Whatever, no, wow, but thank you for watching. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and your website. Oh, my goodness, I love the project because you give all of that fine research. I was like, how do I find out all this? How do I use it in my classroom? I'm a college professor. And, um, and you know, the books and, you know, so all those questions are answered because you got this great website. <laughs> you got this great project. So perhaps um, since um, Sarah's going to have to leave really soon, um, maybe we could talk about sort of how this film came to be because I read that I have you, Emily, and Sarah to thank for having Jeffrey's story in it, because, oh my goodness, you know, like, his was the fairy tale, you know, growing up in America, black family, you know, like in the Little Red storybook, and the Little White storybook, not storybook, but yeah, and the Blue one yeah. we had to read in elementary school. You were that family in the last one that was that lived down the street, but I didn't know anybody like that, because I, I didn't grow up in the fairy tale. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, it was really great to meet your family. So I'm so happy you all developed over the three years this trust. So, so talk about about how you all did this. Like Sarah, you want to start? Yeah. Sure. Um, well, I mean, Emily and I came to it late when Jeff had already been giving this talk for a number of years, and I mean, you know, it. My experience was I just really stumbled upon him. I'm a 
a criminal defense lawyer like Jeff, and um, Jeff was giving his talk to a, a group of criminal defense lawyers who uh, were getting credits so they could uh, renew their their licenses to practice law, um, as boring as that sounds. And um, I, I heard Jeffrey speak, and um, I came to his presentation as someone who felt that they already knew a lot about um, uh, the history of racism in our country. And um, I realized I knew very little. Um, Jeffrey was and is an amazing speaker. He's uh, knowledgeable, compassionate, um, you know, uh, He's just the the teacher anyone would want, you know, and any student would want him as their as their history teacher. And I I walked out of Jeff's presentation a different person than I walked in, and uh, that's you know the, that's an experience that doesn't come along too often in the course of a person's life to feel changed by um, a few hours of listening to someone else give a presentation and having had that experience and being both a, a criminal defense lawyer and a filmmaker, I called Emily, who's my sister and a filmmaking partner. And I said, we need to, we need to, we need to find Jeffrey Robinson and um, convince him that he needs us to help him get this out to a wider audience. So that, that was, that was how Emily and I got involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Jeffrey, I was reading um, in your notes that, you know, you, you became um, a, a father uncle to your to your um, nephew, um, Matt, and he was 13, you know, that real important age, you know, where one is trying to define himself and also rebel. And so how do we raise black boys in America? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, like, what a creative way to parent as well as investigate the suffering that you were feeling. Because I'm thinking about Thich Nhat Hanh, who just made his transi- transition, you know, last mm-hmm. week on the 22nd. Right. And he and Dr. King, Dr. King was a little bit older than him. He's like three years uh, older. But he dedicated his life, Thich Nhat Hanh did, to Dr. King's, realizing Dr. King's um, uh, notion of the beloved community. And I think your film is certainly in keeping with the beloved community, particularly since you book in it with Dr. King and Dr. King and, and Memphis, Tennessee, you know, your hometown. So as long as you could talk a little bit about, about. Well, what, one thing I will say about, you know, what you noticed about the film and the brilliance of doing that in the film, that's all Sarah and Emily. And mm-hmm. to the extent that Emily is the editor, you know, she is the one that, that, that cobbled this together into the thing that it is, which is so much more than my presentation. I'm very proud of my presentation. I continue to give it, you know, even now. Um, but uh, this this experience was unique for all of us, I think. We would <clears throat> go to different places in the country and usually I'm giving my talk and then we're meeting with people. And I think after every trip, we ended up saying to each other, wow, this is like the most, this is the best trip, or this is the trip where we got the best 
kind of information or the best interviews, the most powerful interviews. And we just kept re-experiencing that time and time again. And it, it, that is a gift as I think back on it now, the experience that we shared in putting this together. And I think it started because they did approach me and they said, we want to make a movie. And I didn't know them. I knew their last name, but I didn't know them. And as I talked to people who did know them and I talked to them, we started developing uh, a really trustful relationship and approaching this as a community of people working together to try and create something that was more than my talk. And the first time I saw a rough cut of the film, it was extremely emotional for me because I, you know, I, I, I recognized myself. It's like, yeah, I know who that is. Um, but I just didn't, it was so different from my talk and so, so much more alive because of the people who agreed to sit down with us that I was just overwhelmed. And so I think that's an example of where people can bring what they do together to create something more than, you know, anybody would create individually. So um, Sarah and Emily demonstrated who they are to me in every conversation we had. And it got to a point where I trusted them, well, essentially with my life's work. And that was one of the best decisions I ever made. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we're gonna come back, um, Jeffrey, to how you know your your nephew's son you know sort of started you on this road but emily please uh yeah um you know, I, was, I was just you know sitting here thinking you know people people ask you you know as a filmmaker oh you know how long did this did this take to make from like you know inception to the finished product or to you know and we were always like oh you know i mean the, the easy answer is five years from the time we first sat down with jeff for coffee and hot chocolate it was released theatrically, but in reality, you know, and that's, and that's pretty short for a documentary, you know, but in reality, it's 12 years because we didn't start this from zero, you know, we started this from Jeff having spent eight years doing this tremendous amount of research to put together the core of this film, you know, so I think we should change that, guys, and we should be saying 12 years, you know, <laughs> next time someone asks, because I don't, you know, like, if, if we had all gotten together for coffee before Jeff had started doing this research, he said, you know what would make a great film, you know, and we came up with this concept together, and we were like, let's just do it. It would have been totally overwhelming, right? Like, oh, my God, we've got to start doing this. You know, it's, it's only because Jeff wasn't thinking about a film when he started doing this research that he, that made the research possible because he just you know it was a personal project and personal projects seem manageable right making a film for yeah. public consumption is like you know is enough to explode your brain um, and one thing that I was that I also was thinking about as Jeff was talking um, it, and it's something that Sarah and I discussed while editing this film and Jeff I'm, I actually think it's something that I never mentioned to you or I haven't said yet which is in editing this film I really saw it at times. Um, or at least and I still do from one perspective as a conversation between you and King, you know, it's this, 
it's this, this, this childhood influence you had that you came back to, uh, uh, you know, again and again for this, this motivation and insight. And, and you realized who he was, you know, from this hero to this real person to this vulnerable person. And then going back to him at the end, seeing who are, who's going to lead us now. That I really, I, I, I definitely intentionally put him through at different points so that you could engage with him and get these insights throughout the film. Please a minute. Take your time. Um, well, you're. Uh, thank you. That was. Uh, thank you for uh, sharing that. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, I'm good. <laughs> so, so what are you feeling? Uh, I, you know, I don't know that I have uh, the right words uh, when uh, different things about uh, making this film and uh, different things about uh, my life and my parents and and things that happened in Memphis. Uh, I think Emily's description uh, just brought uh, a bit of an uh, avalanche of, uh, of all those things. And and you know this is a this is a, an emotional uh, journey. It is a journey that. Uh, I've really, really worked very hard to be guided by fact and not opinion. Um, but the concepts, the concept that facts can't contain emotional con con content is, is just wrong. Um, so, and I also uh, will say that uh, the older I get, you know, I cry at anything. So, um, and maybe that's a good thing, but it doesn't take much to, to get me going these days. We, we really relied on that in the editing. You know, if we couldn't make, we couldn't make Jeff cheer up at least a tiny bit, we knew it. <laughs> we knew we hadn't done our job. <laughs> right, it's like, oh, did you see the new cut? How long did you cry? Okay, that's good. He's <laughs> our emotional barometer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I was just wondering um, <clears throat> if, um, uh, Sarah, before you leave, um, and Emily, if you could, um, uh, if you could talk about um, your commitment to engage in anti-racist self-reflection and action as a prerequisite to being a part of, or for Jeffrey, from what I understand, feeling comfortable with having you as a part of this project, the film project. How, how does that how did this show up, like concretely, for you as directors, for you as people? <clears throat> because the whole family was involved in this road show, like 
daughters and grand and mothers and and wives and right. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know exactly because I'm not reading it anymore. But it was like it was like you know how you get in the, in the van and the family goes and sees America like they used to. That was That's what it was. Mhm. It definitely was that, you know, our, our mother came, our older sister came, uh, Jeff's wife came, uh, Emily's daughter came with us. You know, it, it, we're all lucky that Emily has the capability of driving. In addition to being a, an, a fabulous <laughs> editor and a filmmaker, we, we joke that we should have given her her credit as, um, as a driver because she's, she's probably the only one among us who can drive a 15-passenger van. Um, but in, in, with each, um, but but with seriousness, you know, I mean, I think I think anti-racist self-reflection as a white person is something you only learn how to do by doing. You just have to put yourself into it and um, accept that you're going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing or perhaps come at it with a perspective that you end up shifting in terms of, you know, the, the, the place you come into it might not be the place you come out of it. Um, I think it's like, you know, any type of self-reflection is that you have to be able to willing to stretch yourself to change. And that's humbling. Um, but it's also one of the amazing things about being human is that ability, right? That we have that capacity to, to grow and change and shift perspective. It's one of the most beautiful things, uh, uh, mystical, beautiful things we're capable of doing as, as human beings. And so, um, I mean, we get asked about this a lot and and I really think it's a willingness to put yourself out there and a willingness to be changed and and it's such a gift ultimately that if as a white person it seems like a hard thing to kind of put yourself out in the world to do it's it's such a gift to be able to 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 do that and participate in that and in the making in our 15 passenger van um as we traveled around um we had some we had some hard interviews and we met with some people who were had experienced some profound traumas and we would get back into our van and talk about the work we were doing and talk about I mean, sometimes we couldn't talk at all because we couldn't there were some interviews for which we had, the van was totally silent. Um, but it was a great space to talk about the work we were doing and why we were doing it. And um, it, it was one of the gifts of making the film to get to sit in that van and have those conversations. And, and actually part of, a little of that is even in the film, there's a moment in the van um, after the interview with the, um, the Confederate flag waving man in, in, in Charleston, where um, you, you see Jeff in the van kind of um, reflecting on, um, you know, whether or not he thinks that man can be changed. And that was 
you know, that was actually a conversation that Jeff was having with Emily kind of as they were digesting that interview together, Emily was asking Jeff questions and, and that was Jeff's response to that. Um, so, you know, we want white people to see this film as an opportunity to engage in that self-reflection, um, to facilitate that self-reflection and, um, and to begin, you know, to, to the extent they haven't, you know, I mean, everyone, everyone's in a different place. Everyone's going to come to this film in a different place, but, 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 but the three of us really want this film for white people, for black people, for people of all races to be a point of a conversation and to be, and to perhaps be a, a shared knowledge base from which to engage in that conversation. This film is like an open invitation to get on that bus with us. <laughs> That's great. Um, so we only have a little time left. So, so Jeffrey, um, I wanted to ask you, I'm going to give you a couple of options. Would you like to talk about, you know, sort of having Matt and then this idea to do all this research and put together this talk and doing this talk, you know, here, there, um, and then, I don't know, hopefully you'll save a little time to talk about some of these wonderful conversations that you had with survivors of serious terrorism. Serious terror. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Um, when Matt came to live with us in 2011, his mother and his grandmother died, and they were both raising him in New York. And so he had undergone trauma of losing his parents, and he was coming to live with his aunt and his uncle, who he knew, but we were now his parents. And uh, my wife and I did not have children, and I was terrified for all kinds of reasons. One of those reasons, it's like with white privilege. It's like if a white family had this happen and the nephew comes to live with a white couple in Seattle, they'd be terrified for the same reasons I was terrified. And then in addition to that, he's a young black man living in my house. And I was talking to him about surviving encounters with the police and realizing that I was telling him what my father told me. And when my father told me in the 60s, he told me it was what his father told him in the 30s. And that was devastating to me. I was looking for ways to talk about things, ways to raise a black child. And when I started looking and reading, what I found uh, were things about our history that I had never heard before, even though I've had one of the best educations in America. And being trained as a criminal defense lawyer, you're trained that when you have a incredibly complex set of facts, one way to try and understand them is to put them in a timeline and then just see what happens. And when I did that, the top of my head came off because what I saw was an unbroken step-by-step -step connecting each step from 1619 until the present. And so I was going around giving that presentation uh, because I felt like I had to share it with people. And that's just what I did it as a criminal defense lawyer. I did it when I went to the ACLU. And I think I became a criminal defense lawyer. Uh, well, I know why I became a criminal defense lawyer, because I wanted to be that since I was 11. But I went to the ACLU because I felt like I wanted to do more. 
And I left the ACLU in March of last year to form the Who We Are Project because I felt like I wanted to do more. So uh, giving this presentation around the country has been a very educational and uh, motivating thing because I know how, you know, Sarah said it kind of changed her life. It changed my life too, except it was changing my life week after week because I'd find one thing and think, this is the most bizarre thing I'll find. And then the next day I'd find something else and find something else. So I just had these continual like slaps in the face of all of this information. So uh, it was a, it was a labor, but a labor that I'm really glad that I undertook. Um, and I can't remember what the second thing you wanted me to talk about was. Um, it was the, 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 um, interviewing all of these these people that have um, that that have had this these uh, traumatic experiences. Yeah. Actually, uh, <clears throat> my trust in Sarah and Emily and my my relationship with them is the main reason. Uh, <clears throat> that there's stuff from my personal life in this film because they they kept talking to me and kept talking to me about how important it was and I told them at the beginning I don't want anything about me personally because this is not about me this film is not about me this film is about our country and our community um, but they kept talking to me and you know we went to Gwen Carr's house and sat down in her living room and she talked to us about her son being killed and watching videotape of it happening. And that was an incredibly difficult interview, um, an interview uh, that was amazing. And actually, I was speaking to an activist the other day who said, uh, somebody that was interviewing us, who said, you know, I know Gwen Carr, and I have seen her and talked with her in all kinds of situations, but I have never seen her talk about her son like that, like what I saw in the film. And I think we went into all of these interviews with a great deal of respect for the people we were talking to and respect for their stories. Um, I think they saw, many of them either saw the presentation that I was giving or understood what we were doing and that made them more willing to talk to us and to share their stories with us. And I do think it was a major impact on me because I ended up thinking if Tiffany Crutcher and Gwen Carr can sit down with me in front of a camera and talk about the slaughter of their relatives, their loved ones, then I can sit in front of a camera and talk to guys I went to school with. Or I can sit in front of a camera and talk to a woman whose family was involved in helping my family buy a house. And, and I think, uh, I think, I think uh, it was a privilege to meet all of these people, and uh, probably one of the richest experiences of my life. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to um, compliment you, uh, Emily and Sarah, the way, um, you know, Jeffrey would, you know, present, you know, the scenario. And gosh, your research is so phenomenal. Oh, my goodness. And folks need to go to your website. Um, the who we are project.org because it's all there. Yes. Wonderful. We can read the books. We can read the articles. We can look again like, what do you say about Francis Scott Key? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it is just awesome. So, you know, the way that, like you said, you, all these speeches, all, you know, Dr. King just 
popping up like, you know, he's right there next door and he's like, come on, we need you to like, you know, <laughs> you to like add some evidence, you know, like, you know, cause you know, we don't have to look anything up cause you know, you're so credible. And, and then you have these interviews, they just come in so seamlessly. And I'm like, and I'm like, even though some of them we know, we don't know all of these because these are just regular people. Exactly. You know, these are just regular people. Into his apartment. Like, um, and that's what's so powerful about it is that these are just regular people. And one of the things that <clears throat> the Who We Are Project is bent on doing is to find, preserve, document, and record more of these stories because if they exist someplace, it's much harder to erase them. And we practically erased the Tulsa massacre from our consciousness until the activists and descendants and survivors made us take a look at it uh, last year. And one of the reasons that you can't erase stuff is if you preserve it. Nobody can erase Mother Randall because she's been interviewed by other people and that's great, but she's interviewed in our film too. That's gonna last forever as long as, as we are around, as long, and so you can't erase those facts. You can't say it didn't happen because we can point you to Mother Randall who lived through it. And I think that's one of the goals of the Who We Are Project is to find these stories and to help our young people record, document, and tell these stories because if we make them historians, none of this is ever gonna be forgotten and America's gonna change because of it. Yeah, I wanted to mention that I met Ms. Carr um, as we were um, touring the uh, National Memorial for Peace and Justice um, mm -hmm. by EJI uh, and the Legacy mm -hmm. Museum. And so we were looking at, you know, these these stills, you know, which represent, you know, all of the people that were, you right. know, a victim of racial uh, terror killings. And and there she was, um, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. And, and her, um, I'm not sure if it's sister-in-law, um, lives here in, in Berkeley, uh, Edith Boone. And uh, and so that was her nephew, uh, Eric Gardner, who was killed. And right. so, yeah, it, and she has a book as well that people can read to sort of learn more about her son and, and the circumstances around his, his killing. Um, and I wanted to mention when um, you talked about Francis Scott Key and you, and you uh, read that not off-repeated verse, <laughs> um, that here in San Francisco, I don't know if you've got a chance to visit, uh, but it's called Monumental Reckoning. And uh, Dana King, hmm. she she created these 350 ancestors, and they surround the plinth that Francis Scott Key's statue was on that they took down in 2020. And wow. they're up, they're holding the space in the concourse right across from the De Young Museum for two years, so last year, and it was unveiled on Freedom Day, uh, mm -hmm. June 18th, 2021, you know, when, um, you know, Juneteenth became our national holiday. Exactly. Um, yeah, and so the city of San Francisco, which has a black mayor, um, she gave, she also made it a municipal holiday, um, but some of them, you know, came to work, and it was really beautiful, so I put a link to the recording. That Thank you. The Thank you very and, much. And, and, and I, wrote, I wrote a piece. Um, I couldn't kind of find it for you, but I'll send it to um, someone to get it to you that was published about that. But you really, when you come to San Francisco, day and night, you can go there and you see these 350 African ancestors 
um, surrounding the plants, and they're all female, mm-hmm. uh, and, it, and, it, and it, sort of, it sort of looks at the 1619, you know, to the present. Yes. And it's really, it's really lovely. And, you know, that's uh, one of the things that we have also thought about at the Who We Are Project. There's two sides to monuments. There is taking down monuments to people who do not deserve to be remembered in that way. And there is the erecting of monuments that have not been erected yet to uh, make people remember the events that happened and that shaped this country. And so that's another thing that we're going to be looking to do is to go to places like Elaine, Arkansas and other places and make sure that there are monuments so that people, when families are on vacation, then, you know, they're looking at this statue. It's not a statue of John C. Calhoun. It's a statue of an African-American that did great things in this country or endured in order for their, their uh, descendants to have a better chance at success. And so making those things into monuments, I think, is part of what we're about so that we are going to change the narrative about what our history really is. Certainly, certainly, yeah. Um, any closing thoughts, um, Sarah or Emily? Congratulations on, on the, the opening uh, this week, <laughs> the fourth Thank evening. you. Yeah, yeah. It's a film. Um, also, can people watch it um, uh, uh, via the online yet? Well, um, right now, it's, it's, only in, it's only in theaters. Um, on Friday, it's opening up in, in more than 300 theaters. Um, it, this, this film has, has um, made a relationship through Sony Pictures Classics with the AMC theater chain. Um, this is not the kind of film that plays in AMC theaters. Um, so right. it, it gives us a real opportunity um, to reach people where they are. You know, and, and art house theaters, they're, they're just in major cities um, and, you know, and, and with a typically white audience. Um, but now that we're gonna be in this, in this huge theater chain that has these theaters in, in Essentially, every major city and some sec- and, and secondary cities across the country, um, we have a real chance at reaching a, a larger public um, and uh, and influencing um, people's thinking and opening people's minds. And AMC is going to, uh, given the pandemic and other concerns, they're going to try and make arrangements so that you know groups can rent out a theater and so that you can see things in a COVID-friendly way and. We're very grateful to AMC for, you know, taking those steps. And I think it's just another recognition that um, Sarah and Emily and I have always been saying, we're just betting on the film. If people see the film, um, we believe there will be a reaction to it that will continue the momentum that we've already built. So the more people that see the film, the better off we are. It's yeah. also, we also believe that it's a film that's best seen in, in a community, in, with, among other people, among people you know, among strangers. We really think it's a film that serves to be seen in the theater. It will end up being um, streaming ultimately, um, but um, if it doesn't have a, a theatrical release that, that, gives, that gives, teaches people what it is, that, that have put this name out there, no one's ever going to find it you know, search, look for it or search for it in any streaming network. Um, it'll just be lost uh, among millions of titles. So we're really hopeful that this theatrical release will help, um, will help get this film's name out there um, so that ultimately when it is available in people's living rooms, they'll know how to find it. 
Yeah, because, well, when it's available, people can, you know, have their own, you know, group screenings, you know, community yeah. screenings. That's right. People, like, you don't want to watch who we are. And the way you say, how many of y'all have, have ever owned a slave? You know, like, <laughs> you want to be with people when you when you answer that question. <laughs> you want to die oh, at people's eyes. <laughs> like, yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are several places where I like being in an audience and just to feel and hear the reaction of people when they see things. And, mm -hmm. and I think that is, like Emily said, this film is made to be seen in community. It really is. Yeah. So are you all going to be at any of the screenings here in the Bay Area um, or elsewhere um, this, this opening week? The opening, we, we have been really, it's been really difficult for us trying to like manage this. Sarah and Emily are doing talkbacks in New York every weekend. I'm going to be doing some in Seattle. Uh, I don't know if we will make it to San Francisco this month, but uh, this is one of the things that, you know, we have been thinking that uh, this, this is just like one month out of the calendar year. And one of the things that we are letting people know is that if you see the film and you have a group that says, you know, we want to like discuss this with Jeff Robinson and Sarah Kunstler and Emily Kunstler, then they can contact the Who We Are Project so that we can make arrangements for that. So we plan on treating this film as kind of opening uh, at least for the rest of this year and maybe longer than that, because when people see it for the first or second time, whether it's in March or whether it's in November, there's going to be a desire to like, how, do, what do we do with this? What do we do next? And we plan on being there throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Could you talk about 50 years, you know, mm -hmm. later? Yes. And, yeah. I mean, yeah, we're still having the same conversation. And you mentioned your father told you, you know, you're telling your son. That was devastating for me because I'm like, you know, so is, is Matt going to tell his son the same freaking thing I'm telling him? And that was really a moment where I thought I, I, I have to do something different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you all so much for this wonderful work. And uh, it's, yeah, I, I don't think it's ever going to get old until things change. And hopefully, you know, as we're going up the incline, you know, the ball doesn't go back that way. You know, it goes. That's, that's the point this time. We want it going forward. And uh, we have a chance that is unlike any other in our history. And that doesn't guarantee success, but it does say things can be different this time. So we're going to find out. Right. Yeah, certainly. Well, thank you again for this conversation. And hopefully, you know, we'll have another one. Absolutely. Thank you for your interest and thank you for watching the film. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're quite welcome. It's, it's, I'm sure you're going to get all kinds of awards. You might have already gotten awards, but yeah, this is a really important work. And thank you so much, um, you know, for, you know, for taking this, this journey. And then thank you, um, you know, Emily and your sister for, you know, shaping it in this way so that it could reach even wider audiences. I mean, that, that Juneteenth, 2018 that was like awesome oh man the young people singing and then afterwards the closing song yeah lovely thank you so much yeah. <laughs> all right you all take good care okay bye bye bye, -bye. <laughs>
So we have another film that we're going to talk about this afternoon, and uh, and I have an interview with the directors, but I'm going to read you something I wrote. Uh, this film is a part of a series uh, on Frontline uh, PBS, and this film is called American Reckoning. Uh, it is a film directed by Yoruba Raikin and Brad, and I'm not messing up his name, Brad uh, Leitenstein, and uh, it's screen, streaming uh, free on on PBS presently as a part of a a larger um, a larger um, film series um, investigative film series, and and here is what I wrote. It's in March. Wanda's picks. Before I watched American Reckoning, directed by Yoruba Raikin and Brad uh, Leitenstein. I thought it was going to be another tragedy. You know, black victims and white saints and demons who flee into whiteness and get away dry bones in their wake. I just wasn't feeling yet another Ma'afa story, a story where black people are killed and no one bleeds in return. I should have known better given the track record of the creative team, Riken, um, the killing of Breonna Taylor and... uh, Leitenstein, Ghosts of Attica, among other films that they've directed. Um, uh, we actually had um, uh, Yoruba on uh, the show back in 2014 when she was talking about The New Black. And that was uh, the the campaign and uh, election of Barack Obama. The Reckoning is a resistance story, a successful one that unrolls like a crime mystery. True There is violence and death, but the folks in Natchez were not rolling over. They were fighting back. The story is also yet another American story that shows bad guys getting away and black people without resolution. Mumia Abu-Jamal says in his book by the same title, Black Life Does Not Matter, Never Has. American Reckoning, uh, one film in a frontline series, Unresolved, uh, the re in parentheses, so unsolved, uh, which looks at the cold cases from the civil rights era, which until Congressman John Lewis's Emmett Till Act, which supports the investigation of these cases. Unfortunately, um, for the case investigated, there have been no successful prosecutions. Only 21 remain unresolved of the 150 cases um, that the Emmett Till Act is uncovering. In most cases, the killers have since died. No one so far is charged when in the Jackson case and in others, in the Jackson case and in others. We learned that uh, in the Warless case, the one we're going to be talking with there, the one these two directors are um, sharing in this particular film. The guilty parties were well known. The Deacons of Defense feature prominently, as does the brother of Megger Evers, NAACP field secretary. Um, He was killed June 12, 1963, Um, in his Jackson, Mississippi driveway. You probably remember that. Charles Evers, his brother, who was born on September 11, 20, 1922, um, 
three years uh, before his younger brother, plays a key role in the Natchez organizing. Um, he also later becomes the first black mayor of a Mississippi city, Fayette, um, from 1985 to 1989, since Reconstruction Era. Isn't that crazy? Um, since Reconstruction Era, he was the first black mayor of a Mississippi city. Um, this uh, Fayette is the city in, uh, that we're speaking about. George Metcalf, NAACP president, who, surv- who survives a car bombing at that time, also features prominently in the compelling film. The deacons of defense show up with arms for the men who defend their communities. It is fascinating. It is a fascinating history. I really need to edit my stuff. (laughs) I need to read it out loud so I can catch these things. It is a fascinating history many do not know, especially black youth. The Natchez community uses boycotts and other effective strategies to economically bring the city to its knees. Those white businesses were closing their doors, and so the mayor agrees to the 10 demands. Among the demands are hiring black police officers, hiring black people for jobs, formerly closed to them like supervisory positions in the auto factory. Conditions got a little better for the black folks in town. Jackson applied for a job previously reserved for white workers. He was supervising men who hated him. The raise was just five cents, but it wasn't about the money, obviously. The Ku Klux Klan marched legally through town, their visual presence a terrorist act. Nothing was done to protect Jackson. No one was shocked when one of these races wired NAACP NAACP leader um, Warless Jackson's truck with explosives. Jackson was targeted precisely because he stood up. His bereaved wife and five children's lives were destroyed, yet the family kept asking questions and pushing for resolutions, if not justice. It is also crazy how the killer was known, yet for some reason he escaped prosecution. It is also crazy how the editor of the town's newspaper told the offspring who killed their dad 40 years later, 40 years later, and and that's recent. You know that, like his, you know, his uh, Warless Jackson's widow did. She did. She died without knowing who killed her husband. And the children who've grown up with this trauma, they just found out recently. You know who was responsible. Warless Jackson was one of many righteous folks fighting for his freedom. He challenged the racial system and was killed because he took a job from a white man. The raise just five cents, as I mentioned earlier. The killer who wired his truck with explosive wanted to kill children and other innocents. Justice and black people live on different blocks previously gentrified. The film shares an important story that most of us don't know. We need to learn this history, the lives taken by cowards whose lives were threatened by people who decided to defend their community as they marched for civil rights. These were working people who cut hair, fixed cars, cooked meals, and mopped floors. Warless Jackson had three jobs, not including cooking meals and combing hair when his wife got lupus. Political rhetoric then and now continues to be a fiction, given the safe position racialized terror groups like the KKK have licensed to torment and kill and maim black people without interference from Natchez law enforcement who instituted 
a curfew and called in the National Guard when black people organized an economic boycott for all white-owned stores when the mayor refused to grant the community's 10 demands following the explosion, maiming um, the, the NAACP leader um, that I mentioned earlier. The use of economic sanctions is only highlighted in Montgomery, Alabama. Everyone knows the year-long boycott of mass transit. However, this successful natural story makes one wonder, where else were similar strategies used? These black men had guns. If they hadn't, there would have been a different option. Rykin, or Richin, I think it's Rykin, references the documentary Black Natchez. 1967, which aired on national educational television, the predecessor to national public broadcasting. Directed by Ed uh, Pincus and David Newman, if black people had made this film, Rackin says, what would it have looked like? How would it have been different if it would have been different? We weren't given access, obviously, at that time to tell our own stories. So that's another reason why this American reckoning is such such a pivotal a pivot in the way that black history, our history, is narrated, is told. This has changed. Black directors do have access. So American reckoning is from a different perspective, historical and present. What unfolds is a truth couched in historic context. Warless Jackson's children are adults when we visit Natchez with directors. The two directors were speaking, Brad and uh, Yoruba. Yet the story has multiple chapters written almost daily. When will this assault on justice stop? It's great seeing Congressman Lewis and learning about the Emmett Till Act regarding civil rights era code cases. And it's really great that um, Frontline is doing, has done and is doing this series unpacking these cases, you know, for our viewing edification. Unfortunately, there is no justice. 150 cases, 21 left, no convictions. So anyway, I had a great interview with the directors, and I'm going to play that right now so that you can hear it and uh, and learn more about um, the case and um, and about the film. Um, uh, when we when we talked about the new black, and I think we talked about another one, you were making a film about the uh, the sisters of the good death. Oh no! So that we must have talked like with Promised Land. That might have been my first film. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we talked about that one too. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I got you on the but new I, black for sure because I found yeah. it. Yep. Okay. Yeah, and this film. Oh my goodness, Wireless Jackson. Oh my goodness, what a wonderful story. What a wonderful man. And I mean, I knew about the Deacons of Defense, and um, but I didn't know that they were that tight and that revolutionary. Like you know, you know, come on up with train. You give you the guns. Show you how to shoot them. Um, yeah. And oh man. It's just really a phenomenal story. And then to see, you know, uh, the late Congressman John Lewis come in like, whoa, awesome. And then um, I didn't know that um, uh, the civil rights uh, person who was killed, um, uh, Maker Evers, I didn't know he had a brother. 
Mm. And I'm like, wow, wow this yeah. is so great. And then, and then the first bombing, he lived. He I'm lived. Like, yeah, Mr. Yeah, I just love the approach because I, I was kind of avoiding watching it. I watched it last night. Um, mm. So I didn't get a chance to watch the, um, um, the other um, uh, documentary that was done like way back then. Um, Black Natural. Black Natural. Black Natural was like, where'd you all get this funny? Like, it is like such, like, oh man, I'm just talking too much. So anyway, um, <laughs> maybe you could tell us how, how you met each other and came together on this project. Um, um, you know, big ups, Brad, on uh, on Ghosts of Attica. Oh, wow. That is like, oh my gosh, to meet you, that film. You know, now we have Stanley Nelson's like, <laughs> your, your film was the go-to. <laughs> yeah, like some history sitting here with us right now. Like, whoa. Oh, I appreciate that. That was 20 years ago. Hard <laughs> to believe. Hard to believe. Yeah. Um, oh, and I met um, at uh, an ITVS orientation. Yeah, when I was there with my film, The New Black. Um, and that was in 2012, I think. I think that's right. Yeah, and I was there with um, As Goes Janesville. Yeah. And we both discovered that we like whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those bonding moments with filmmakers. Exactly. Exactly. And then um, Yoruba came on to this project. We were at Sundance um, and I, I literally uh, ran into her. I was, I was late to something and you know how they shut down main street except for, um, except for the black cars, you know, that take you. And I uh, pulled on a door and opened it up. <laughs> was it? And it got into my car. I got into your car. I was like, can I please have a Yoruba? <laughs> that's cool it was like, yeah. Then like we started, yeah yeah and then we started talking about just you know what our projects we were working on and developing and what we were doing there at Sundance and uh, Brad told me about American Reckoning and um, you know talked about how you know talked about the film what he'd been doing um, and, you know, asked if I'd be interested in, in working with him on it. And so he sent me, uh, when we got back home, sent me the trailer that he initially did. Um, and I was just amazed by the story and by the archival footage that I had never seen before. I think the thing that really struck me in that, um, in that piece, Brad, if I remember correctly, is the footage of the, uh, Charles Evers, um, pointing out the KKK members inside Armstrong Tire Plant. Um, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, we, I mean, we did, you know, it's, yeah. it's the same effect. Uh, yeah. Totally the same effect. Uh, but, uh, and then when I read the treatment and found out that the deacons were a part of this story, I had, uh, you know, I'd heard of the deacons uh, and been obsessed with them because they're so, written out of our civil rights, our black freedom struggle. Uh, so when I found out that was part of it, I was like for sure on board uh, to work with him on this film. And that was in 2016. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, six years ago. Hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was really something, um, I mean, such a history. And, and what I really liked is um, 
the idea of resistance, you know, like, you know, black folks didn't just roll over, you know, and, 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 you know, you know, you hear about the bus boycott in, um, in <laughs> Alabama, you know, Montgomery, but this is a, this is a bus boycott and it, and it did more like afterwards, like, okay, we're going to just, we're going to just keep on shutting y'all down. Um, and then the 10 point or the 12 point, how many points to that, to the, um, the, what they wanted, their demand was 12, 12. Yeah. Yeah. And they got them. And, yeah. and then, and, and, and I don't, nothing like that happened in Montgomery. Um, this is, this is like precedent setting and it's yeah. silent, yeah. you know, and this, these were young men, like, you know, they were like in their thirties. And he had, and, and, you know, the um, Orless Jackson had five children, but he was down. And, and then, you know, for us to be able to see what it meant. And I loved that, you know, when they would do the swearing in and, and we got some of the language. And, but then around, around, you know, gender discrimination. Yeah. Um, what happened with that? It didn't seem like that got resolved. <laughs> Still a factor. Still, well, still not resolved. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's better today. Just one thing I want to say uh, is that the next film, and maybe you'll have me on for this as well, that I'm working on is about the first. It's the first feature documentary about Rosa Parks and her radical activism, both before and after the bus boycott. Um, so, uh, but anyway, Brad, do you want to talk about? What did you ask? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going on and on. I, mean, well, I think you were talking a little bit about about you know the feminist angle that we that we sort of try to work into the film, and you know I mean we saw it in the footage. You know you see Jesse B. Um, you know on the two occasions that we included, and there's others where she's calling out the men, and you know in black matches you probably see a little bit more of the evidence of, of how male dominated the movement was. Um, you know, we love that Dory Ladner appears in the film. She is the one who tugs on Bill Ware's uh, shirt and tells him that the uh, mayor has rejected all the demands. Um, and of course that, that's what made the community resist even more. But, um, you know, there's so much that needs to be done to try to uh, bring out the role that women played in the movement. Um, and the way that history has marginalized their contributions. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, so how did you all, how did two directors do a film together of this magnitude? Mm. I mean, like, there's so much. And you, and the film is like an hour and 23 minutes. Like, what's on the floor? Like, how did you do that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> there's always a lot on the floor. <laughs> there's a lot on the floor. I mean, one thing that's interesting is, you know, we made this for Frontline, obviously. And Frontline, you know, usually has an investigative format. And so Yoruba and I kind of started out really conforming to that. Um, you know, Stanley Nelson, the journalist, had investigated more than just one crime. He had investigated five of them in the region, especially Frank Morris, who was the first uh, story that he started to work on, because Frank Morris was a man who was killed, uh, his uh, store, he had a shoe store, he was burned alive um, by uh, the sheriff, most likely, deputy sheriff, uh, who was a Klan member, and two other men. Um, and uh, what we kind of discovered pretty early on, and, and a lot of props to Don Porter, one of our, one of our, one of our executive producers, um, 
she was like, you know, the film really compels me when I'm in the community, when I'm in, you know, that rich archival footage that was shot by Ed Pincus. And you two should just lean into that. And so we, we began to sort of, I think um, maybe we were just the ones feeling it, the, the idea that Frontline wanted more of an investigative story um, and just leaning into what the footage was telling us was there. And eventually we ended up with, you know, a community history uh, film, which is better, <laughs> I think, um, especially because, you know, the, the people who did these crimes are dead. And, um, you know, one of the things I think comes out in the film when you learn how much um, effort there was to fight back against the violence and against the white establishment's, um, you know, oppression and segregation and uh, marginalization, you know, you sort of, I think when you learn all that, then you really feel not just the loss, which is huge for the family, but the loss for the community and like the bigger, um, you know, picture of, of our country's history. Um, you know, they come through stronger because we spend so much time really building up that, that story and matches. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Does that, that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Yoruba, um, do you want to add to, you know, sort of, I, I agree, it's such a rich, I just, I mean, we know these men and women and children and and the the descendants of these people, you know, like Warless, who was killed. I mean, like we, like the seven year old who who grabbed the shoe. I'm like a boot. I'm like wow. And then how the mom, the wife knew that was her husband. Yeah, that's Jackson. It, yeah, that blew up. What is it? It was horrible. I mean, horrible, but I'm happy that we know it. Yeah. And, you know, Warless, uh, this story is, um, you know, replicated, has been replicated throughout the country, not just the South. Uh, names that we don't know, people who were killed uh, in their, you know, struggle for, in the, in the freedom struggle uh, in their community uh, and, and nationally. Uh, you know, our history is, our civil rights can be reduced, is often reduced to just a few people, um, uh, one strategy of, you know, nonviolence, don't fight back. But that has not been the case. That's not truthful to what we have experienced um, and to what the movement, the long history of the freedom struggle has been. Um, I think it's interesting. One thing I think about, I think with Warless, that's interesting and makes so much sense is that he tried to shield his family from, you know, the violence that was all around them and the violence that he was, and the, you know, the threat that he was facing. Um, You know, obviously his wife was, you know, was, was totally worried. She said, you know, Deborah says she was in a nervous frenzy every time he went out. Um, So they, you know, they knew he was a marked man uh, in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, how could you not be when you are working in a factory with a, you know, a bunch of KKK members who, um, you know, and so then you already tried to kill your best friend, already tried to kill your best friend and his, um, his, and taking that promotion, you know, I feel like it was the last straw for them. Um, when he took the promotion, 
were that and an African American had never, you know, held that job before and it's considered a white man's job. So, um, you know, I, I think we're so happy to have honored and tell uh told the story of, of Warless and that the family participated and let us tell that story. Yeah. And um and I had I think I vaguely remember the Emmett Hill um, Act, um, you know, mm-hmm. sort of uncovering these un, uh, these cold cases of people that were killed during the Civil Rights Movement, um, and and then I saw that 121, and and they've already like can't resolve them, you know. I guess the people who did it were dead, and so there's 21 left to investigate, and I'm like, dang. You know, yeah. this is why this is why there was a need for deacons of the tent. So what do we call it now? In twenty twenty two. What do we do? Yeah. You know, there's no justice. Yeah. Well, I think that you know, the film begs the question of what is justice, right? Since as you said, uh, you know, the cases are closed, the people are dead. Uh how uh can we serve the families? And one of the things that we learned making the film is that Congressman Lewis um, he wanted not just a uncovering the cases and reinvestigation, but he wanted a truth and reconciliation commission, similar, you know, like South Africa did, uh, to really air these stories so story, these fil- these um, families could have some sense of closure of what happened to their family members. Um, but of course, that wasn't politically viable at the time, um, and you know, it was was, you know, he wasn't able to, to do that. But is that something that we can reopen now um, in order to give, in order to give, you know, some justice, some measure of justice, closure, what have you, to the families? And also, you know, you bring up like today, it's, it's so important that we don't have some filmmakers 50 years from now making a film about the unsolved racially motivated murders of today that you know this this history teaches us that we made a mistake you know as a nation by um by not holding people accountable at the time and we best not make the mistake now i mean i'm afraid that we are making the same mistake now uh especially when you think about how many uh police officers are not tried or are um tried and not convicted for crimes that you know most people look at the evidence and, and they see a different outcome. So in many ways, I, I think about our film as being a kind of, um, you know, warning that we have a chance not to make the same mistakes again. And, you know, in the Emmett Till Act, um, you know, Denise says it, that it felt like a lot of hype, at the, you know, and gave families hope, but there really wasn't. Um, and, you know, I don't think Congressman Lewis intentionally tried to um, you know, cause people to have false hope, uh, but it just points to the way in which, um, you know, the faith in our government is so thin, um, you know, and it, and it continued, that we continue to, to, to have instances like that where, um, you know, our elected officials will make a lot of noise about justice in one, you know, frame or another, uh, but where are the results? Yeah, yeah. And then and then, you know, um the uh uh Orlis, uh Junior talks about the trauma and, mm-hmm. and you see his mother just wanting to know 
who did it. And they knew who did it, but they didn't have proof to try the person, but they knew who did it. And I'm like, dang, like before she died, why didn't the FBI give yeah. them She really didn't know before she died. She really, you no. know, she had no idea. Uh, mm-hmm. There were lots of theories in town, you know. And she, and, and, you know, one thing that's not in the film, because we didn't really have the time to get into a lot of the relationship in terms of the local law enforcement, um, but, you know, J.T. Robinson, who made grave errors during 1965, obviously, par- Parchman, um, yeah, so he, he tried to keep a relationship with uh, Exerlina, um, Denise tells a story, I think it's Denise or Deborah, I think it's Denise tells a story that, you know, he asked for forgiveness before he died for not having solved the case. Um, but, you know, local law enforcement never uh, knew very much about about the case. And, and then as you see in the film, the FBI did share information. They didn't share information with local law enforcement. And then um, the high-ranking person said that that's the way to do. Like, they ask questions. Yeah, they Roy Austin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Talk about some of those interviews that you all, like, that were you new to the film that you have um, produced. Well, you you interviewed Roy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, we really tried to get – the FBI it was definitely a long process of trying to figure out exactly like why no one was prosecuted because in 67 as you know they did a thorough investigation they had thousands of pages it all pointed to Red Glover um, so it was really you know <laughs> uh, 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 we we really tried to double down on you know what what was the reason and um, I don't think actually we ever got a super satisfying answer. Um, except that, you know, what, he, you know, what they said that it wasn't enough, you know, proof. It didn't meet their, their, uh, well, first off, he's dead. So, I mean, that's one thing, but, uh, it didn't meet their, you know, standard of a uh, standard, their legal standard to be able to, you know, in 67. Now, of course, I am a, a bit skeptical about that. <laughs> um, as, you know, we know the history of the FBI and who was running it and, uh, the people, uh, you know, on the the ground, not to say that, you know, they were all bad, but it just doesn't, it just doesn't uh, make sense to me that, um, you know, they were, even though they had all this, I guess, circumstantial evidence, um, they had an informant uh, who could have, uh, Deborah's father, right, who said, uh, who could have, who said he could name Red Glover, but he was considered, you know, a bad informant because he, you know, had not, you know, not credible. But again, how many not credible informants do they put uh, to testify against people, you know, on drugs, charges or gangs or all that kind of stuff? Black Panthers. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, I think there's some things that we'll never know, um, but uh, it's it's quite frustrating, mm-hmm. and more so for the families, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine living all all those years after her husband is killed, and 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 nobody, you know, is no one 
Well, no one's going to take responsibility, but then, you know, people sort of throw stuff in your face because those folks were walk, walking through the middle of town. I mean, yeah. like, like there was no shame. Rating. Yeah. Oh yeah. I hey, called a woman. Um, I called a woman that Denise told me about, uh, who who is a daughter of a KKK member, and she hung up on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's you know very alive every day. You know, I, I um, when I interviewed Cheryl Glover, who is Warla Senior's niece, her mom was upstairs. She was ninety two at the time. Um, so this is this is present. It's not ancient history. Um, I, I think, you know, one of the um, interesting, like, paradoxes of the film is just that. Like, on the one hand, it's a half a century ago, and we're telling history, and we're telling a part of history that doesn't often get told, whether it's the fact that this is a, you know, small community story and the foot soldiers of the civil rights movement, or it's the story that flies in the face of the kind of nonviolence, um, you know, orthodoxy about how we tell the civil rights story. But also it's living history in that, you know, literally during the broadcast, um, Denise and I are texting and, um, you know, she's checking in with us and we're checking in with her because it's, it's personal and it's traumatic um, and, you know, and it requires support. And that's as living and breathing as it can get. I mean, you know, it's um, it's it's interesting to kind of hold both of those things at the same time. There there was you know there was a photo that we ended up not using um, precisely because of that. That it was a gruesome photograph of um, you know of Warless. Um and while it's a very powerful image, if there's a segment of your audience that you need to like shock into understanding how horrific um, these people were, the Silver Dollar Group. Um, but on the other hand, Denise told us a story that, um, that that photo, which had been published in Jet Magazine, traumatized her mom. Her mom would hide the magazine. People would bring the magazine over in the years, you know, and uh, she, would, she would hide them. And then Denise did the same thing. She would hide that image from her children. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they don't need to be multiply traumatized. I mean, they're living with the trauma. Yeah. You know, through the the violence and the loss. And and Representative Lewis said, you know, like no one gets therapy after any of this. Yeah. Where like, where was the where was that? I think that's why the film so naturally um, is an argument for reparations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was hoping that within the bill there was money for resources around healing and trauma healing well, for the for the for the survivors of these uh, these killings, these murders. That's a whole thing, and you know, um, our film is part of a larger project called Unresolved, and the podcast gets mm-hmm. into that issue about the money. Um, and, you know, there's at least two things about money to say. One is it's very hard to actually figure out what was done with the money and, and if it was even spent. So the FBI says that they already had a cold case initiative that they felt like, you know, this is their words, that they were committed to these cases and they were spending funds to do their reexaminations. Um Cynthia Adito uh, tells us that they were not 
uh, drawing down on the money that was allocated under the Emmett Till Act. So then it begs this question of, well, where is that money and what was it being spent on? And, you know, we did some investigation into that. The podcast did more investigation into that. And there weren't conclusive answers, which really begs this question that you're raising, you know, if these, if these cases are futile anyway in terms of accountability through law, why not spend that money to help make families whole again or at least contribute to make – I mean, you can never make a family whole after experiencing a loss, but to do something. Yeah. Yeah, but look at how, you know, the political situation that we're in today right. you know, around, you know – <laughs> spending any money on any services for our people, you know, um, it's just just a really sad state of affairs. I mean, I also want to say before we uh, have to go that, you know, the film is coming at such an important time in our country where there's an assault on truth <laughs> and an assault on history um, and telling the true history of this country as Americans, not just black Americans. Um, so, you know, it's just really this piece of uh, this this film, I think, you know, will c- contributes to that uncovering and examination of our history that, you know, they're literally, literally passing laws uh, to stop to passing laws that, you know, you can't tell history that makes people feel uncomfortable. Um, so, uh, you know, we we consider this film as part of, you know, the the counter uh, counter to that uh, and hope, uh, you know, that it gets out educationally. Uh, we have big plans for screenings uh, across the country, educational uh, screenings. Um, so, And as Cheryl Glover says in the film, white denial is the strongest thing we got out there. I'm paraphrasing. But, you know, it's, it's rampant. And I think that's what's behind all of this crazy backlash yeah. against truth in our education system. Right, yeah. Is there a separate um, website for the film? Because I was looking to get uh, a list of all of the interviewees and things like that. And and when I went to the uh, PBS uh, mm. frontline, I didn't find more details about your film specifically, and I was wondering, does that exist anywhere? I think I think they post that after the broadcast. It might be there now. Because I know they were they were um, even asking Yoruba and I, you know, uh, questions about um, about the transcript as recently as yesterday. So I think they they post the transcript and resources. Okay. Yeah. And and finally, I just wanted to mention I really like the way you sort of came full circle with the tours. You mm. know the mm. the status quo tour. You know, with the Confederate <laughs> uh, flag and the American flag, and oh, everything is same and wonderful. And then the reality tour with the author of oh, yeah. We Fight Back. Yeah. yeah. What was his name? Well, actually, it was not, that was not, uh, that, you're talking about Akinyeli Omoja. Oh. Oh, uh, that wasn't him it, doing the tour. No, no. that was. Well, he was, but his voice is in the scene. Oh, that right, right, right. But, the, but the, the, He wasn't on the tour, yeah. Right. That's uh, Sir Boxley was, was the organizer and tour leader. Um, but yeah. And Dr. Akinyele uh, Amoja is at Georgia State University. Yeah, yeah, because I'm like, that's the tour I want to do. <laughs> yeah, it's a good tour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. Wow, well, thank you both so much. Um, great work. 
looking forward to other work of yours. Um, yeah. Thanks for noticing all the all the details. Oh, if I had more time, I would have mentioned others, but no worries. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was great right. to see you. Good to see you both. <laughs> great to meet you. Thank you, Wanda. Right, you take care. Bye. Bye. Right. Um, Yoruba, listen to Boxley's voice. I did. I did. It's amazing. <laughs> so great. Yeah. All right. We should call him later. Yeah, together. yeah. That would be fun. Okay. All right. Bye talk to you later. Bye-bye. <laughs> ah. So that was a wonderful conversation with uh, the directors of American Reckoning, uh, one of the films that's a part of the um, Frontline series, um, which looks at the unresolved um, killings of civil rights leaders.